When you hear the word prohibition, what do you think of? Do you picture the roaring 20s and gangsters like Al Capone? Maybe you think of drug prohibition, gambling, sex work, or age restrictions on tobacco. Maybe you consider the migrants who are forbidden from crossing international borders. Whatever comes to mind, you probably know that various forms of prohibition are embedded into the fabric of our society, and if you're like most people, you don't think it's working. I'm Scott Cecil, the host of Prohibited, a podcast about prohibition. On this show, I explore the impacts of prohibition by interviewing those who are working to dismantle, create, or maintain its various forms. This is Prohibited. Hello and welcome back to Prohibited. For this episode, I sat down with Stanford Frazier. Stanford is a public defender in Prince George's County, Maryland, where I live, just outside of Washington, D.C. He is a graduate of Howard University and Harvard Law School, and he recently announced his intentions to run for state's attorney for Prince George's County, which would make him the top prosecutorial attorney in the county and one of the most high-profile attorneys in the state of Maryland. I find Stanford to be a very intelligent and impressive individual, and we cover a, a good amount of ground in this interview. We talk a little bit about you know, how much power prosecutors have in the courtroom compared to defense attorneys and public defenders, and we talk a little bit about, about why Stanford has decided to run for state's attorney. And then we close it out by talking a little bit about police reform and criminal justice reform and some of the reforms he would like to do if he wins the election. So thanks again for joining Prohibited, and let's get right to the interview. Stanford Frazier, thank you so much for joining me on Prohibited. Thank you so much for having me on the pod. Well, I'm excited to have you here. We've been trying to make this happen for a few weeks, so thanks for your patience. And also, you probably don't know this, but the show has been on hiatus for a few months. So having you here now as a guest is really great timing, because this particular topic which is sort of around the the amount of power held by prosecutors and district attorneys, the amount of power they have in the courtroom, is a relatively new topic for the show. But before we dive into all of that, uh, why don't you tell our audience a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Yes, so my name is Stanford Frazier. I was born in the U.S. Virgin Islands, St. Croix, but I grew up in Prince George's County, Maryland. I went to Howard University for college. I studied history and community development there. I really enjoyed my time at Howard, of course, and I really got involved in, let's say, activism and social justice, social justice works. And I used that energy to take me when I went to Harvard Law School at at Harvard. So law school is three years. So I spent my second and third years representing people in the Harvard Legal Aid Bureau. So I represented low income tenants in Boston's housing court. And I really liked that work. My first year of law school, I did not like the classroom experience. And it was probably the first time in my life I actually really didn't enjoy learning. But once I started applying that legal knowledge to actually helping individuals, I was like, okay, I actually love being a lawyer. So what have I been doing for the last four years? I've been working as a public defender in Prince George's County. And what does that mean? When people are charged with crimes and they can't afford a lawyer, they can get assigned a public public defender by the state of Maryland. And I think most recent statistics is about 70 to 80% of the people going through the criminal legal system are eligible for a public defender. Great. Thank you so much for that background. And I didn't know that you were from the U.S. Virgin Islands. And one of my favorite members of Congress is the delegate from the Virgin Islands, Stacey Plaskett. I actually was not familiar with her until the second Trump impeachment trial, 
listeners might know that Stacy Plaskett was one of the house managers, and I thought she did a really great job. I mean, all the house managers were good, but um, her, sh- she and Representative Nagoose from Colorado, I think, were the two most talented house managers, and I really enjoyed listening to her. Have you ever gotten a chance to meet her or talk with her? I have not, but you know how it is. Everyone on the island is like, well, you know, you got a cousin that's a friend that's a friend, maybe one day. <laughs> you got to go get that endorsement, man. We got we to gotta make this happen. Please, please. So you mentioned Stanford. You're a public defender in Prince George's County, Maryland. For listeners who might not know, Prince George's County is on the northeast border of D.C., essentially, in Maryland. And I'm curious to know, as a public defender, what would you say is the biggest challenge that you face when advocating for your clients in the courtroom? The biggest challenge is, you know, in cases it says state versus, you know, Stanford Fraser, for example, or state versus John Doe which means the power of the state is going against your client, trying to convict your client, and they have to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's why public defenders are important, because you have to hold the government to that high standard. But what does that mean? The government has prosecutors, they have police officers, they have forensics, they have chemical labs, they have all these different technologies, they have all these different people who are, police officers are practice and trained witnesses in court. And you facing the system, you're just one individual. You're not a repeat player in court. You have less experience. You don't have the training. You don't have a chemical lab. You don't have forensics on hire in your household. But you do sometimes, or all the time, you have the right to an attorney, and sometimes you have me. So I think the biggest challenge is really that power imbalance in which the state and the government obviously has more resources than just an individual. I want to talk about that power imbalance a lot more and specifically how it pertains to prosecutors. But before we get there, what would you say are the biggest challenges faced by your clients? I know that's, I'm asking you a question in very broad strokes. So feel free to get specific and give multiple examples if you like. But what would you say are generally speaking the biggest challenges that your clients face in the courtroom? I think, I think there's the biggest, there's like the lifestyle challenges, money, just having economic resources. If you, if you have me representing you, that means you qualified. That means your income was at a level in which you qualify for a public defender. A real, just a practical circumstance in Prince George's County, we're right outside DC. So we have the DC metros as, as a means of transportation. We have a local bus system as well as the DC Metro WMATA bus. But a lot of my clients struggle to get to the courthouse because the part of Prince George's County where the courthouse is, their buses do go there, but it's harder to get there. And for a lot of clients, they just, there's that first level struggle to get to the courthouse. Then what, what are the challenges they face in the courtroom? Just just the way the criminal statute's written. We have, you put a lot of things on the book, a lot of crimes on the book and things that sh- to me shouldn't be crimes. And people who've listened to me before have probably heard me say this example, but just in Prince George's County, owning a pit bull is illegal. But not only is it illegal, it's actually a misdemeanor, punishable up to six months in jail. And that's just an example of how we have a criminal code in which we're criminalizing so many different activities that shouldn't result in a human being being caged or threatened to be caged. I'm glad you brought up the issue of the pit bull ban, which we could do a whole nother episode and I actually plan to in the future, just about how absurd that law is and also how it's applied in, in frankly, very racist ways, especially towards black people and especially towards people that don't have a lot of money or, or economic power and resources. I want you to know, I don't know if you already know this, Stanford, one of the first pieces of legislation that I got passed as a city council member was a lowest law enforcement priority for enforcement of that ban on pit bulls by our local police department. And so my strategy there admittedly was using that issue as sort of a way to introduce the concept of 
lowest law enforcement priority decriminalization as a stepping stone to hopefully start to tackle some of the other issues that I know folks like you and I don't think should be crimes. You've decided to run for state's attorney here in Prince George's County, Maryland. And that's not the only reason I had you on the podcast. I I wanted to get your expertise, but I also want to give you the opportunity to speak about why you've decided to put yourself out there and and run for state's attorney. So for our listeners, first of all, what is the state's attorney in Maryland? What is that role? And why have you decided to to run for office? What do you hope to accomplish? So state's attorney is what we call it here in Maryland. In other places, they might be called district attorney or commonwealth attorney. And it's the elected prosecutor for a jurisdiction. So in Maryland, each of the 20 plus counties, as well as Baltimore City, has their own state's attorney. It can be a little bit confusing because it's like state's attorney. Are you the attorney for the whole state? No, but I'd be the, I'm running to be state's attorney in Prince George's County. Now, why? That, right? A lot of people have asked me the why. I think I've seen things every single day in my courtroom, things that I don't think are justice and things that I want to change. What, what's an example of this? One story I've been telling people is that right now in Prince George's County, the ACL, ACLU, I have to say the name properly, has a lawsuit about racism in the police department and hiring decisions and promotion decisions, as well as discriminatory policies and how they're disciplining officers. And since that, there's been a lot of officers, a decent amount, I think, of officers that have been suspended or maybe even fired in the last six or seven or even seven months, maybe even the last year since this lawsuit has started. And a lot of county leadership has been talking about, we wanna clean things up. If there are bad officers, we. We want to clean that up. We're dedicated to having a good police department. But every single day in the courtroom, there are officers that have these problems that are still being used as witnesses in court, still being used to arrest people and have people go through the criminal punishment system. And when attorneys file motions saying, hey, we need that officer's records in court, if an officer has been accused several times of of using excessive force and then charging someone with assault on a law enforcement officer, and I have a client saying, no, this officer beat me up and then charged me with assault, those records are relevant or obviously important to their case. But guess what happens when we file motions requesting those records? Two people come to the court saying we don't have a right to them. Someone from the county attorney's office representing the police union, but also the prosecutor assigned to the case. And to me, that's not justice. The job of the state's attorney is to pursue justice. And when you're hiding police misconduct, I think that's wrong. And I think it actually creates the conditions that allow police misconduct to fester in our communities and harm community members. So that, that's one example. And I'm, I'm, I'm going on going on a bit of a tangent, you know, hopefully you let me go on a tangent a bit. But another thing I realized this past year is that the State's Attorney Association, that's the lobby group of all the elected state's attorneys in Maryland, actually plays a large role in, in deciding what becomes or doesn't become law. So just this past year, there was a build out of actually banned no-knock warrants but the state's attorney's association was against that legislation. So we, so we didn't ban no-knock warrants in Maryland. Instead, we had some reforms. But I, I wondered why is the elected state's attorney, why are the state's attorney association against banning no-knock warrants? I wouldn't do that if I was state's attorney. So I see these type of things. I have so many of these stories. And eventually I said, instead of complaining, I'm gonna run and I'm gonna change it. You feel free to go on any tangents that you want to, because not only do we have the magic of editing after the interview, that's why I brought you on the show, because, you know, even me who has worked 
at least tangentially to criminal justice reform issues for over a decade, I still don't know a lot of these things because I don't have experience in the courtroom. Fortunately, I should I should actually say more accurately, I have very little experience in the courtroom. I have been a criminal defendant in the past um, and did have to use a, a public defender. And I will say, without going into too much detail, I I don't I didn't always feel like the public defender's heart was in it for me in terms of advocating for me to to the best of their ability. And and I don't think that that means that they were not capable. I just don't think that they had as much of a desire to sort of fight against the system as much as I would have wanted them to. And I think that's probably just based on their pragmatic experience that I wouldn't have won. And so I think they were probably a good advocate in the sense that they, you know, helped me avoid jail, which was a potential outcome for me or helped me avoid, you know, a worse possible outcome. But let me unpack a couple things there. Um, you mentioned the police misconduct piece, and I just want listeners to know, a lot of our audience would know I host another podcast called The Outlaw Report, and our reporters, our writers have done extensive, um, have written ex- an extensive number of stories about police misconduct, especially in Baltimore City. And I want folks to know that Stanford is not exaggerating at all, that there are officers who, you know, you said they'll have a few instances. I've seen uh, instances where officers will have dozens dozens and dozens of instances of you know misuse of force or harassment um all the above right and still uh, are still police officers and are still treated as you know credible witnesses inside the courtroom whereas the defendants um aren't and the the it's just it's such a huge power imbalance it's it's got to be infuriating for you you know to see some of your clients be put through that it's it's super infuriating. And here in Prince George's County, there's some officers, example, Lieutenant Scott Finn, who was just suspended from the police department, basically because he was arrested and charged with federal tax avoidance charges. But if you just Google Lieutenant Scott Finn, Prince George's County, what you'll find is he killed an unarmed person in Prince George's County back in 1999. That he arrested a Capitol Heights man in 2001, him and his partner. And basically, within an hour of that person being in the jail, that person died. And the medical reports show that showed evidence that he was basically beat up by these officers during arrest. And he was still a police officer 20 years later with the department. So we know who those bad officers are. If you work in the courtroom, you know who those officers are. And you know every single time they're involved in a criminal case, people are working overtime to hide those records and not let those records come into court. And to me, that just allows misconduct to fester. Yeah, I actually didn't know what I'm about to say until the day before the, the Derek Chauvin verdict was was announced the initial news report about george floyd's death the headline was something to the effect of you know man dies of medical incident while in police custody it it wasn't anything about somebody kneeled on his neck for nine minutes it was just some guy had a medical episode and he died during an arrest and that was it and so it's very clear that without the video evidence of you know the 17 year old child that was you know one of the bystanders that took video on her phone, it it seems clear to me that there wouldn't have been accountability, or at least, you know, there very likely would not have been accountability without that camera footage. It would have just been treated as, you know, a drug overdose or some other medical episode that just happened to occur while somebody was in police custody or interacting with police officers. So I think that's a very clear example that everyone listening to this will, will know about. Um, I'm interviewing Stanford Frazier, public defender in Prince George's County, Maryland. Before we continue, let's take a quick break so I can tell you about one of Prohibited's Season 2 advocacy sponsors. 
This episode of Prohibited is brought to you by CCA, the Cannabis Cultural Association. CCA is a nonprofit organization that helps marginalized and underrepresented communities engage in the legal cannabis industry. CCA's growing network of activists and advocates seek to repair the harms of the war on drugs, which have disproportionately fallen onto communities of color and other marginalized communities. CCA places an emphasis on the pursuit of cannabis equity, from criminal justice reform to patient access to medical cannabis to adult use cannabis legalization. CCA is a national leader in the pursuit of a more equitable cannabis industry. You can support their work directly and play your part in the establishment of cannabis equity by becoming a donor today. As a 501c3 nonprofit organization, your gifts to CCA are tax deductible. To find out more, visit their website at canacultural.org or contact them directly via email at contact at canacultural.org. Support the Cannabis Cultural Association today. All right, welcome back to Prohibited. Stanford, there have been some very high-profile elections for district attorney. As you mentioned, it's called state's attorney in Maryland. But there's been some high-profile elections in recent years around the country. And a notable one is just a couple of hours up the road in Philadelphia where a civil rights attorney became the DA about four years ago and is facing a very, very fierce election uh, challenge by somebody who is, you know, basically an ally of the police unions there and is someone that used to work in the, in the DA's office in Philadelphia that was terminated by their current district attorney. Is, is the state's attorney in Prince George's like the DA in Philly? I'm just bringing that up because it's, it's, it's an instance that I think a lot of our audience members will be familiar with. How are they the same or different? You, you sort of already addressed that, but unpack that a little bit more for me. They, they're pretty much the same. I think some of the issues would be different because while criminal laws are similar state to state, there are some differences. I know one big issue in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia in particular is probation and the length of and how long probation can be. And while probation is an issue here in Maryland, I don't think it is to the extent it was in Philadelphia. But a lot of the things that Krasner has brought to the office, I would love to bring here to Prince George's County. And I have some ideas that he hasn't brought. Yeah, feel free to elaborate on that a little bit. You know, you touched on this already, but what are some of the reforms that you would like to bring to Prince George's County as the state's attorney? Um, and are there any reforms that have been happening that you support or that you would like to further uh, and advance those f farther if you become the district attorney? So the incumbent created a conviction review unit, and I think that's a good first step. One of the things that advocates have been talking about lately in Prince George's County is, and I might over explain is we want, pu we want publicly released the list of officers with credibility issues called a Brady list. And there was a local news report that basically said this list includes 28 officers, 15 of them aren't called as witnesses in court. And when I heard that, I realized, okay, that sounds like half of the officers are called as witnesses in court. And this list is, is private, which means no one gets to see the list. No one knows who, what officers are on this list. But here's the more important question. No one knows how many people are sitting in jail or have convictions based upon the testimony of these officers on this list. So not only do I wanna publicly release this list, I wanna use this list of officers, go over those 28 names and say, we're gonna review every case over the last 30 years involving those officers. Because if those officers aren't credible, then those convictions aren't credible. So that's one reform I wanna bring. Another reform I wanna bring is no more children in adult court. What does that mean? 
for certain criminal offenses, depending on a child's age, they can be charged in adult court or a juvenile court. But I think the research is clear that people's brains aren't fully developed until maybe 21 or 25, that children have different, have different levels of impulse control. And, just, and, and because of that, that children shouldn't be, shouldn't be in adult courts. And we talk about ending the school to prison pipeline. And to me, kids, charging kids as adults is the school to prison pipeline. So that's, more, that's another thing I want to change. When you mention the school to prison pipeline, listeners should know that at the federal level, under the very conservative-leaning Supreme Court, which now is six to three in favor of the the conservative justices, it looks like we're going in the wrong direction on this issue because uh, recently Judge Brett Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh, wrote the majority opinion, uh, re- I, if, I, if I remember correctly, reinstating the death penalty for um, children who are tried as adults and just kind of furthering really reversing what had been sort of a recent trend moving away from trying um, minors as adults in federal court and kind of moving us in the wrong direction. Am I characterizing that correctly as far as you know? And then also, do those federal changes have an impact on what's happening here locally, both in the state of Maryland and in Prince George's County? So it's not the death penalty. It's life without the possibility Ah, of parole. Thank you. Ah, thank you. Thank you for that correction. And the legal standard in order to charge kids with that. And before it was actually getting to the point where we thought we were progressing, where you couldn't charge children with life without the possibility of parole. And a couple of years ago now, maybe a few years ago now, mandatory life without parole for children was ruled unconstitutional. So because this, because these rulings are actually under the federal constitution, which impacts the states, it impacts Maryland and it impacts the rest of the country, Prince George's County. Thankfully, the legislature just this past year banned life without parole for kids. But, but I think, I think these laws demonstrate why we need changes. I think one thing I like to mention in Maryland is there's no minimum age to prosecute a child in this, in the state of Maryland. There was legislation to create that. Unfortunately, it didn't pass this year, and I'd be an advocate for it to pass in the future. Well, I'm encouraged to hear that the state of Maryland has outlawed life in prison without the possibility of parole for minors. That's somewhat encouraging, but it goes back to what you were pointing to a moment ago. It seems very egregious to sentence anyone to life in prison, even with the possibility of parole, who was a minor and, as you say, does not have a fully developed brain and therefore cannot fully comprehend the implications of their actions the way that we should expect most adults to be able to do. And I was especially upset by, I guess, the irony of the fact that Justice Kavanaugh was the person who wrote the majority opinion. Because as folks will remember, when he was going through his confirmation process, there were allegations about sexual misconduct that came about out about him while he was a minor. And based on the way that he behaved during his confirmation process, um, I'm inclined to believe that those things happened. And if they're not being held against him, it just it took a lot of brass for him to for him to write the majority opinion, knowing that those allegations were out there about him. Stanford, you touched on this a little bit, but before we move on to the next segment, are there any other reforms that are specific to Prince George's or specific to Maryland that you would like to pursue as state's attorney? Yes. One of the things I mentioned earlier was that instead of banning no-knock warrants, there were some legal changes, there were some reforms to the process of getting a no-knock warrant here in Maryland. And after October 1st, 2021, all no-knock warrants have to be approved by the local state's attorney's office 
either the state's attorney or the representative. So if I was elected state's attorney, I would never approve a no-knock warrant and would basically, not, not officially, but basically ban the use of them here in Prince George's County. Help me understand the following. As the state's attorney, are you able to just direct other prosecutors on what they may or may not do in the courtroom when it comes to certain policies? And then conversely, Maryland has an attorney general, right? So are they able to direct the state's attorneys on what you may or may not do? I'm just wondering how much of the power is centralized in the state's attorney, um, both in terms of who you're overseeing and then in terms of who oversees you. So the state's attorney is elected and then decides the policies for their office. So they can create diversion programs. They could say, we're going to focus on this and not focus on that. We're going to focus on that and not focus on this. Now, with the attorney general, the attorney general in Maryland can't force the state's attorney to act. But there are some criminal charges. It's a limited amount in which they also have the power to prosecute and bring the court. You're listening to Prohibited. Before we continue, let's take another quick break so I can tell you how you can support the show. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about police reform. Listeners should know that here in Maryland, the state legislature recently passed a reform package, which included a number of things, but one of them was the repeal of the Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights. Maryland was the first state to pass this sort of legislation back in the early 1970s. I believe it was in 1971. Stanford, can you give our listeners sort of a boilerplate explanation for what the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights is and what repeal means? Because I'm hopeful that repeal here in Maryland will lead other states to follow suit, much in the same way that adoption of the Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights legislation did. So what are your thoughts on Leobor repeal? And uh, do you think it'll have that domino effect that you know folks like yourself and, and then me are hoping it'll have? Well, first, I hope it has that domino, domino impact, that domino effect. I think it's really hard to give a boilerplate overview of what Leobor is. You, you, can give, you can give a comprehensive explanation too then if you would like. I think I'm, I'll try to simplify it where in Maryland, there have been officers who have been found guilty of misdemeanors such as falsifying evidence or misconduct in office. But under Liebor, you couldn't fire an officer for a misdemeanor. You could fire them for a felony. But if, it was, if even if they were found guilty of a misdemeanor that was on the job, you had to go in front of something called a police trial board, a board which is basically a jury made up of other police officers where you present evidence and then they would decide whether this officer would be punished, when what level of punishment. So it would be the police, the police policing themselves. Does this mean, I'm sorry to interrupt you, does this mean even if you were the police chief and you wanted to fire a specific officer or you're the city manager like we have in my city and you want to fire a specific officer, you couldn't do that unless the trial board rules against the officer? In most cases, correct. Based upon the, the they call them labor protections in the ABOR. But instead of these protections being about making sure people have living wages and healthcare, which I obviously support, these, these protections allowed officers accused of misconduct, officers even found guilty of misconduct to remain on the force. Any other parts of Leobor in Maryland that folks should know of? And then actually, I'm going to surprise you with this one. Do you happen to know whether the governor is going to sign that criminal justice reform package? Because I know that 
it's if I'm if I'm if I got this correct, I don't think it's been signed by the governor yet. Do you know if it still p- potentially faces a veto or where are we at with that particular package? Because and I keep saying legislative package just for listeners to know the law enforcement officers bill of rights repeal and replacement was one piece of a larger reform effort around police reform and criminal justice reform. So have you heard anything or heard any any rumors or whispers about whether or not the governor is going to sign this? Well, another important element that I wanted to mention was that did pass was Anton's law. And why did Anton's law have to pass? Because previously, certain misconduct records of police officers, you mentioned Derek Chauvin, he had 22 use of force or internal affairs investigation. Wow. But in Maryland, that would be secret until Anton's law was passed, where you had officers that were accused of misconduct multiple times and the public didn't have a right to, to, to right to know. So journalists, they would file Maryland Public Information Act requests about misconduct in the police department, but because of protections in LIABOR, they didn't have to hand them over. Those were considered, those disciplinary records were considered private personnel records. Anton's law changes that so that those records may be released in certain circumstances. So that's a really big change because I, I always say, you know, when the lights are off, that's when the, the bugs, they're secret, but you, you turn the lights on and the, and the bugs scatter. But in, so misconduct, when you turn the lights on, it scatters. But those, but Liebor allowed that misconduct to hide in the dark. Yeah, that's a really great analogy. And you mentioned that it's Anton's Law, which is named after someone who was a victim of police violence. Do you know much about the background story behind that that you could share with our listeners? I don't have it in front of me, but it was an individual named Anton Black, who I believe was from Montgomery County. He was on the Eastern Shore. And it was basically an officer who had a long history of misconduct, a long history of misconduct records against him, was the officer that ended up during a police intervention, I believe it was, believe it was an arrest. And I believe it used force that ended up killing. So he killed Anton Black in, in the course of, of an arrest. So this bill was named after him because, like I said, that misconduct was allowed to stay hidden because these records were hidden. And the hope is that now that these records aren't hidden, these records would be public. But I don't have his full story in front of me, so you know I just want to say my prayers to to his family. I want to thank them for be for taking their pain and becoming advocates for change. No one should have to do that, but I thank them for doing that nonetheless. Yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate it. I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a little tangent here, if you'll bear with me, Stanford. Just an anecdotal story for the listeners in 2020. So shortly before the COVID-19 pandemic started. I'm fairly active in Annapolis. I do some legislative lobbying for for different groups that I'm affiliated with. And I showed up to testify um, for CASA for Maryland, which is an immigrants' rights group. And I was there to talk about um, a couple of bills that that had to do with immigrant rights protections. Um, And I was sitting through another hearing that was about the decriminalization of cannabis threshold. Listeners of the show might know that in Maryland, Possessing 10 grams or less of cannabis is decriminalized, which is the lowest decriminalization threshold threshold for cannabis of any state in the U.S. that has decrim. And one of the folks who was there to testify against raising the threshold from 10 grams to an ounce, which it is still 10 grams, unfortunately, but it was, I'm going to get this wrong, Stanford, so you can interject and correct me, but it was the sheriff from Wicomico, if I'm saying it correctly, county, um, which is also on the the eastern side of Chesapeake Bay here in Maryland. And his testimony essentially was 
that we shouldn't change the decrim amount because he once, during a traffic stop, uh, found the driver of a vehicle to be in possession of less than an ounce of, mar- of cannabis, but because it was in an individualized baggies, he assumed that the person was selling cannabis. And during the arrest, he testified that the suspect tried to grab his firearm and that they had a struggle over his firearm and that he shot and killed the guy. And I just was in such disbelief sitting there thinking, this person, you know, granted he's a law enforcement officer, but still, his rationale for not decriminalizing cannabis was one time I had to fight with a guy over my gun and then I shot and killed him. There was no, there seemed like there was no remorse. There was no discussion over this, this was not worth this person losing their life or even that sheriff potentially losing his life. And I just, I don't understand the thinking because my reaction as I was sitting there listening was like, well, wouldn't decriminalizing the cannabis have been the thing that avoided the confrontation in the first place, right? And it just was so bizarre to me to to see that type of thing. So I'm sure that you, you know, probably would have been a, le- a little, maybe you would have been a little less shocked, Stanford, if you'd been there because you hear testimony and stories like that from law enforcement all the time in the courtroom, I imagine. So... Yeah, I just wanted to share that story with you and just, you know, it, it kind of gives folks who maybe haven't experienced that the mentality for some law enforcement agents, you know, here in Maryland and around the country. No, thank you. Thank you for sharing that story. I think what that highlights is when we criminalize things, going back before with the with the ridiculous pitbull example, when we're criminalizing things, that means we want armed government employees trained in force, including deadly force, to be to be the ones that are going to be enforcing that criminalization. And I think when we think of it that way, it really says, you know, some of the things we put on the criminal code, I don't think we want armed government employees trained in deadly force to be involved with. So then they shouldn't be on the criminal code in the first place. That's how I describe it to folks. Yes, I agree with you 100%. And there are any number of issues, sex work, drug possession, um, you know, alcohol, public alcohol consumption. There are so many others where an armed, you know, someone who's having a, a mental health crisis the last thing, in my opinion, that we want to do is to introduce an armed police officer into that situation when there's not a direct threat to public health and safety. And I want to let you know that when I was able to get the the decriminalization ordinance around enforcement of the pit bull ban here in, in, in Mount Rainier, where I live, um, the thing that I think got it over the finish line was I asked our police chief in an open meeting, how often is this law being enforced by our police department? And he said, never since he's been the police chief. And then I was like, how many times has our our police department ever enforced this law? And he was like, as far as I know, zero times. And so the thing that got it over the line wasn't getting people to agree with me that the ban was poor policy, but it was really codifying what was already happening in reality, which was that the police were not essentially wasting their time to try to enforce this law. Oh, and by the way, none of them are animal control officers. And even if they were, enforcement of the law is just based on their subjective visual interpretation of whether or not a dog is or is not a pit bull, right? So they could be a mix with other breeds. They could just they could be an American bulldog, and you just you just mistake it for a pit bull. So, man, I, again, like I said, we could have a whole podcast just about that ban because it is so unscientific that it's just absurd that it's that it's actually on the books. But I would even imply. Um, or I would even imply that same principle to some of the things that I just mentioned, sex work, drug possession, public alcohol consumption, et cetera. So 
Is there anything that you want to say in response to that in terms of, you know, it not being appropriate to introduce armed law enforcement personnel into those situations? And are there other examples that you think we should look at as well that I didn't name? No, definitely. So Rachel Rollins, the elected DA in the area of Massachusetts that covers Boston, she actually instituted a policy of nonviolent misdemeanors that she was no longer going to prosecute. And they just had a study that showed by dismissing those cases, those individuals in the, in the cases she dismissed, they were actually less likely to be rearrested than when you would prosecute those offenses. And when you think about it, it makes sense because just an, an arrest, let alone a conviction, an arrest alone can mean getting fired from your job, getting evicted, losing a professional license, ineligibility for financial aid. So when you think of all those collateral consequences, when we're talking about nonviolent misdemeanors, such as drug possession, such as being loud in public disorderly conduct, such as charging homeless people with trespass, it doesn't protect the public safety to criminalize those things. And then here's the other thing. When you criminalize it, that means police officers and prosecutors are wasting their time preparing those cases and, and, and not using that time and that money and those resources on actual offenses that do endanger the public safety. So that's so I want to institute some of those policies of dismissing some of those nonviolent misdemeanors that do not harm the public safety. Thank you for that. And and Stanford, I want the listeners to know you and I have had the opportunity to work together a little bit on harm reduction policy here in Maryland. Most recently, you participated in a panel discussion that I moderated during Baltimore Harm Reduction Coalition's annual Harm Reduction Advocacy Day, which, of course, normally takes place at the state capitol in Annapolis. This year, of course, due to COVID, it was virtual. And one of the victories that we got legislatively and that that we talked about during that panel, one of the victories we got legislatively this year in Maryland was drug paraphernalia decriminalization. Now, it's worth noting that although this bill has passed the legislature, it may still be vetoed by the state's Republican governor, Larry Hogan. So hopefully we'll have an update on that soon for listeners, and I'll be sure to update you on a future episode on whether or not the governor signs that or simply allows it to become law or vetoes it. But Stanford, from the standpoint of a public defender, what is the significance of this law if it goes into effect? You know, How much are your clients impacted by drug paraphernalia possession laws? Our clients, it definitely has an impact. When I was testifying in favor of the bill, one thing I mentioned was, and I'm gonna have to do a little bit of explanation. So Maryland has something called, we call it the Good Samaritan Bill, which basically means if an individual believes someone is having a, a medical emergency based upon possible substance use, that the individual who calls or the inv- individual suffering from that medical emergency, when the police respond to the scene, that you can't prosecute them for simple drug possession. And the policy behind that is we wanna save lives. So we wanna encourage people, if you think your friend is ODing, or if you think yourself is OD, or if you think you're going through an OD, to call for help to save lives without thinking of criminal penalties. One of the things that we've seen in my work as in public defenders across the state have seen is that in these circumstances, sometimes officers say, okay, I can't charge you with drug possession, misdemeanor drug possession, but I can charge you for having that needle. So I can charge you with that drug paraphernalia. So you're still facing criminal consequences in those circumstances. And for listeners who are interested in Good Samaritan laws, in some states and localities, it's referred to as medical amnesty. So if you're looking that up for your state and you can't find it, try searching for medical amnesty. And some listeners out there who are familiar with me will know that I worked on medical amnesty and Good Samaritan policies at the campus level when I was working for students for sensible drug policy for the same reasons Stanford just mentioned, not even necessarily drug overdoses, but 
the most widely used drug, alcohol. It's a huge problem on college campuses, especially at parties where people might be underage and, and consuming alcohol, where if somebody is, is has alcohol poisoning or gets injured in some way, folks are reluctant to call 911 because they're afraid of criminal penalties. So medical amnesty slash Good Samaritan laws are, are great policy. And I'm so glad that we've added, hopefully, if it doesn't get vetoed, that we've added drug paraphernalia decrim to that sort of package of, of legislative protections. All right, Stanford, it's been a pleasure interviewing you, but I always end my interviews with the following question. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you about today? I think, you know, first, thank you so much for having me. I think one thing I just wanted to mention is that your local elected prosecutor plays a large role in in deciding what the criminal priorities are. And if you listen to this podcast and one thing you care about are harm reduction policies, such as and you don't believe people should be caged or even threatened to be caged for misdemeanor drug possession, you should look up your local district attorney. You should look up your local state's attorney and see what their policy is. And if they don't have a policy of dismissing misdemeanor drug possession, you should write them, you should call them, you should email them and say they should institute that policy. And one final thing, how do listeners find you if they'd like to support your run for state's attorney or they want to contribute to your campaign or help you get the word out? Great. So my website is just my name, Stanford, like the university, Fraser, F-R-A-S-E-R.com. You could also find me on Twitter and Instagram as my first name, Stanford, then F-O-R, then M-D. That's on Twitter and Instagram. And then my Facebook is Stanford Fraser, my name, then PGC, Prince George's County. So that's, those are my socials. That's my website. And yes, please log on and donate if you are so inspired. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And we'll be sure to put some links to all that stuff in the show notes for you. And I just want to repeat what what Stanford just said. His last name is Frazier without an I in it. It's F-R-A-S-E-R. So, you know, just want to make sure folks spell it correctly. So Stanford Frazier is a public defender in Prince George's County, Maryland, and a candidate for state's attorney here in the county. Stanford, thanks again for joining me on Prohibited.